Hey Sandy, how you doing? It's hot. Yeah. Because I record <laughs> underneath a blanket. It's a heavy blanket. It's hot in here. <laughs> Maybe one day I can afford a studio. <laughs> but for now, it's the blanket fort. Um, how are you? <laughs> If you think you're going to find out what's going on in the world today through this podcast, this is not the right episode. Yep. Whole new world. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Fuck the current news, whatever is happening. Let's do something different this week. Whoa. Love it. Nope. We don't care. What we care about, <laughs> what we care about is whether or not you know what the fuck you're doing when you're trying to stop a thing from happening. Do y'all know? Do you not? Do y'all know what you're doing when you're trying to stop a thing from happening? Civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. It's so rhythmic. It's so, okay, yeah, rhythmic. That's a word we can go with. <laughs> well, it is. Civil well, it should be. Oh. Oh, you meant the actual civil disobedience. Okay. Yeah, I guess that's resonant. It's it's line two of a haiku, right? It's perfect. Yeah. I was also saying that, like, it's more fun when there's, like, music involved. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, fine. So I've had a couple of people ask me, Nora, you're, like, always talking about civil disobedience online. What is that, actually? And it's a really fair question because sometimes I actually will either talk about the act itself, which is civil disobedience, which doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily clear. And sometimes I just like, okay, civil disobedience now. And then it's like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. So this is the episode dedicated to us talking about civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. And encouraging you <laughs> to be civilly disobedient. <laughs> totally, totally. Rhythmically. And rhythmically and IRL-ally, civilly disobedient. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't have a definition. Uh, I can explain what I think it is, but do, maybe you, do you have a definition? You don't have it, like, tattooed on you somewhere, do you? It's, like, really sentimental to you? Actually, it is. Let me just lift up my shirt here. Uh. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, <laughs> what is civil disobedience to me? Well, it is a organized group of people well maybe not i guess it could be an individual although that's mm. really less effective who um refuse to accept a decree policy legislation whatever something something that's guanin of people in power and do so in a very public way by refusing to just go on with the status quo mm. So that that civil disobedience can be, for example, stopping mm -hmm. traffic. It can be interrupting a meeting. It can be uh, a hunger strike. You know, it can be all sorts of different sorts of things that publicly refuse to allow business to continue as normal as a strategy of seeking change by mobilizing power not from the top down, from people who are who are given power in a legitimate way by the state, but people, civilians, civil civilians, 
who are employing the power that they have as civilians to refuse to accept normal and instead create new conditions. Man, I hope that is tattooed on you because that would be a long tattoo. I was reading it directly from my inner thigh. (laughs) Under your blanket. I mean, it's dark in this blanket fort, but actually um, my inner thigh tattoo is illuminated by black light. Um, It's neon. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a great, that's a great definition. And I uh, agree with it. Thank you. I I think maybe what I would add to is it's these actions that are often creative, often outside of the box. And I think that they probably have to be illegal. Do we have to say that? I don't think that that's true. I don't think they no? have to be illegal. No. I I mean, I think, I also don't think they have to be creative. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you're talking about good civil disobedience. I think <laughs> there's a qualification in your, your right, definition. Okay. Um, but I, I don't think they have to be illegal, but I do think that they often are illegal or that they do not care about legalities. Yes, I think that's a better way of saying that you don't care about legalities because oftentimes... You, you know, when you're operating, let's say, in, a, in, a, in an office environment or in, a, in an institution that has rules, so you're not talking about breaking the law, but you might be breaking decorum or custom or the rules, then that's also, mm-hmm. yeah, civilly disobedient as well. Yes. Yes, indeed. So, for example, what's an example? What's a good example of a rule that's broken within an institution? So if students, you know, students recently in Ontario to protest... Um, the refusal to implement the new sexual education program did a walkout en masse. Um, I don't know that it's actually illegal for students to not go to school in that way. Like, I don't know if like individual students can be <laughs> detained or something like that or get a citation for not going to school. Right. Um, but they they broke a rule, certainly, and en masse walked out of school in an amazing uh, show of civil disobedience across Ontario. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I, one of the things that, I, that I'm hoping that we can talk about in this episode is like our favorite kinds of civil disobedience. Um, how do you how, like, because I just think that like we have a lot of like, we're like dictionaries of this kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then to talk about also, how do you come up to it, like the, the decision to do it? Like, when you're when you're trying to be like really creative and you think that you're doing something that you've never done for the first time or for the, you're doing something for the first time that you don't think has ever been done before versus like you know things that happen for a long period of time that break the law there was a lot of discussions around the civil disobedience of people just selling pot through uh, head shops and 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 how that was actually civilly disobedient mm-hmm. that people would open up stores that you could go in and, and buy pot like that that basically is a great example of paving the way for for literally changing how society interacts with the law that you are that you are trying to demonstrate is unjust. In this case, um, the illegalization of of marijuana. Although of course, those stores are now even more illegal, and a lot of them been raided since the law became in effect. Anyway, that's a whole other perhaps episode. So ridiculous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's your faves? I love actions that force people to break out of like the norm to that it impacts people in a way 
that when you're doing your action, you might be inconveniencing them kind of, but actually the inconvenience gives them a moment of pause to go, something here is different. And so what I'm thinking about is when students at Ryerson um, a decade ago now to convince students that it would be nice to close a principal street at Ryerson University, students just illegally shut the street down. And the first time that, that we shut the street down, you know, we put up barriers. We had to put up people on either side of the road to yell at the truck drivers who really wanted to have access because they were making deliveries. It was very, it was very disruptive. But for students, like it was amazing because people would be walking with their heads down. And what you actually had to do on the sidewalk was tell them to walk onto the street because they just didn't notice that the street was closed. And it created uh, in everybody's imagination the possibility that we easily could shut down the street, that this street could be closed. Now, a year after that first action, and it only stayed closed for a couple of hours because it's totally illegal. And the police were like, either open this up or we're going to fine you. And it was like, okay, fine, we'll, we'll open it up in 45 minutes. Now, the second time that they did it, they actually bought sod and they covered the street with sod. And so it's like a more radical action in terms of actually placing things onto the street because then you can't just reopen it when the police come. And um, and the sod gave the illusion of the street being grass, right, of the street being a park. And there were uh, games and uh, like soccer balls and, and beach uh, uh, beach balls brought down for people to play. And, um, and it was... Because it was more illegal, there was more risk. The The student union was faced with a, a, a higher fine. Uh, the police said it was vandalism because they'd have to get rid of all the sod. Um, but those were my, my two probably favorite, favorite actions that I was uh, directly involved with because it was so fun and so creative and so illegal <laughs> that that you're like yeah like we're just shutting we're just shutting down the street what what's the big deal and they're like well it's illegal it's like okay well we'll open it you know in an hour get back to it Mm, um i think that my favorite is similar to your favorite in that i like um uh, actions of civil disobedience that teach people uh that it's okay to do more like it's okay to to do things like this it's okay to respond in this way because so often people want to respond to something that they see as unjust or unfair and they don't know exactly what is allowed of them and the truth is like basically anything so long as so long as you know you have other people around you to support you and so for me, I think when I think of um, the my favorite, my favorite, like the two, I, I don't know if favorite's the word, but like the there are two actions of civil disobedience. Well, you know what? Actually, that's not even true. There are so many that stick out on my, in my mind for various reasons. Um, but the two that I'll highlight is um, the... The Mother's Day action, which I believe uh, come next year will be 10 years that uh, the Tamil community in Toronto did when there was a genocide happening in Tamil Elam and uh, they took over the Gardner Expressway and um, and refused to leave uh, after weeks of um, of protest of, uh, you know, there was like a 
hands being joined from like Union Station all the way up to Queens Park action. There was an action. There were actions every day outside of the U.S. consulate, just, you know, trying to get Western states to um, adhere to the principles or the, the rules of the Geneva Convention when a genocide is happening that everyone was ignoring. And so this community said, well, fuck it. You're not going to be able to ignore the Gardner Expressway, a major highway in Toronto, being shut down for hours on Mother's Day. And rightfully so, the media wasn't able to ignore it. And while initially the media focused on how dare these people shut down the highway, eventually the media was reporting extensively on on the genocide that was happening. And had those actions not happened, that wouldn't have happened. And so that that's one that stands out in my mind as, as an effective, you know, action where people were really um, risking a lot. There were arrests that night. Um, and that was it was hard. It was a hard action. It was a very hard action. I was there that night. And it what I what sticks with me the most is the, the, the courage of watching people run up the, the off ramp. Or, mm-hmm. or was it a no it was an on-ramp because yeah because it was the it was an on-ramp that's yeah right. and so people running up going past the police who had bicycles there and they were just like we're taking over this highway and they did and it was safe and no one got hurt and then once the once the occupation got to hour like five i will never forget it was like people were ordering pizza mm-hmm. to the occupation that's right and there was like Tim Hortons everywhere mm-hmm. and, and there's families. And it was just this like really like out of a, a tragic circumstance, like a, a bit of a joy or certainly community being made. And then, you know, chanting all night as people were trying to negotiate with the police to get um, somebody on the phone. In the end, I think it was Ignatiev that uh, they had to talk to. Yeah. But it was it was it, it for me, it was like, yes. Occupying a highway is frightening, but if you have 20,000 people, you totally can do it. Yeah, and and people learned a lot at that action. Like, I learned a lot being there about things that, you know, tactics that I would employ later in my life. And I learned a lot about what was happening, like the discussions that were happening on that highway, the, the way that people were informing one another about what was going on, uh, why we were there. Um, it was really instructive. The other um, action that I still like, you know, I just can't believe that this happened and I can't, like, I just, <laughs> I miss it. Like, every time I go by the Toronto police station, I get this, this like, pang of, like, what the fuck did we do? It was the tent city action that Black Lives Matter did where you know, for two weeks, we created a community in front of the Toronto Police Headquarters uh, to protest the SIU report that found that Officer Andrew Doyle, who shot and killed Andrew Loku within seconds of arriving at his apartment for a noise complaint, um, uh, you know, we we were protesting an SIU report that found that the the police officer had acted improperly, but it didn't warrant charges. And you know, we 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 took over um, the Toronto police station, thinking you know we probably don't have enough support to make this 
last for more than I don't know if I should even say like who cares I guess <laughs> we probably we didn't know if we would have enough support to make it last for more than literally four or five hours <laughs> so, but it ended up lasting two weeks and it was because People um, started to learn about what the issues were around anti-blackness in Toronto. People started to learn use that language a little bit more. But also, we're learning about the power of creating a community for yourself. So people were coming to um, Tent City, where we had set up, um, you know, uh, five hot meals a day. Um, there was support for uh, the homeless in the area, street-involved folks in the area. There was um, a kitchen, there was a medical center, there were classes every day in like, I don't know, like dance to like, at one point we had a choir, we had a, we had a movie theater at one point. Like it was like unreal the amount of things that we were able to put together and to learn how the community can create services that they need for themselves in addition to being able to teach people about what the issue was that we were all there for. So for me, um, my favorite, um, you know, quote unquote, because I don't know if favorite's the word, but my like the most impactful civil disobediences are ones where there's a lot to learn from, like where we, where we get more than just because I think out of Tent City um, right after that, you know, came an occupation for Attawapiskat that the indigenous community uh, in Toronto organized at, at INAC. Um, and, you know, th- there was just so much that was generative out of Tent City and so much that was generative out of, you know, the the Allen Road action that Black Lives Matter did wouldn't have happened had the Gardner Expressway action not happened. I can tell you right. that for sure. So, you, you know, there's just a lot, you know, when we learn from one another, those are my most impactful moments, I think. I mean, listening to you talk about um, all the things that the tent city gave you made me also think about um, the time that you and I spent together at the Occupy McMaster location, which was so fun. Dude, I don't remember this. You (laughs) You do. You do. So yes, you do. I mean, Hamilton's my favorite organizing city, so (laughs) I remember a lot. You remember the students at the student center occupied a corner of it because they didn't have control over their student center. Oh, my God. Yes, I do. Oh, my God. This is so cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so for, you know, they set it up at Occupy when Occupy started, which was in October. And um, by the time, you know, winter had basically wiped out Occupy from cities across Canada, these folks, they'd set up in a corner in their student center. And so by the end of the year in April, it was still a place with a bookshelf, a place with a couch. They had a lamp mm, and it was yeah. a gathering space and people would come between classes and and hang out or or organize. And it actually became a, a, a pretty important organizing location. And the symbolism was great. It was like they couldn't really be evicted um, without a lot of heat going on to the student center corporation, at, which was why they picked that spot. And it was it just turned into like a really comfortable study organizing little open space because it was actually just in the middle of an atrium that they were able to kind of cordon off because it was besides other another set of chairs and then by the by the door. And and I love that action because it's. It, it again is like looks at something that is really ordinary, like a student center, 
and ask questions like, well, why don't students own this? Why don't students have the space that they deserve to have? And we're just going to do it on our own. We're just going to take this and we're going to see how long Mm -hmm. we can take it for. So the people who are asking you about what civil disobedience is, is that because they were interested in taking part or they want to learn how to do it or what, what were, what were their concerns? I think it was um, the most recently was when I asked why has there been no civil disobedience waged against Doug Ford? And so this Mm. was a question I think I had asked in, I'm not sure in August, I think. And, um, and then, of course, that that's the kind of thing that that begs the next question. Well, what what would you do? What would, what do you propose? And and I think you and I had talked about a bunch of times about some funny actions um, that are possible, uh, like with the sex ed uh, curriculum stuff. You know, just get a, a brigade of dildos and start brandishing them <laughs> to towards members of provincial parliament, <laughs> um, which is an action. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's the question: is is what where was where is civil disobedience in the in the campaign against Doug Ford or to stop some of Doug Ford's policies? Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's been some, like there was, you know, there. I think you and I have experienced something like this before. I can't remember. Oh no, I do remember what the issue was. We were once sitting in the in the gallery of Queen's Park and saw some people engaging in a spontaneous civil disobedience where they uh, started yelling down at the legislators, legislators below. I mean, that's happened. That hadn't happened when I was when I was asking about this. But yes, that was. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. so but so that is an example of civil disobedience. It's and it's a necessary again. It's I think it's it's so necessary and so useful. Um, There's we can do more. We can do more organized, less spontaneous. Well, I mean, maybe next time everyone brings in some dildos and throws them down. I don't know. (laughs) It's more suggested. Um, but there's, you know, there's different types of things that we could try to do either in the house, outside the house, you know, fuck the house, like maybe on the streets. There's all sorts of different things that we can do. You know, there was a memo that was le- leaked a couple weeks ago uh, about efficiencies in healthcare. Like what can we do in and around uh, healthcare providing spaces that might show that it's not going to be business as usual, but we do support these people. Like, what can we do to make clear how important these spaces are to us as civilians, as people who use them or whatever, what have you, but refuse to just stand by when the government is starting to attack our services? This is kind of like, how do you make good civil disobedience versus bad civil disobedience? And it is in the discussions with the people who are most affected, trying to come up with, okay, what lever- levers do we have on uh, on business as usual? And this is where knowing your history and understanding how power is taken over by the people, and especially within labor. I think the labor movement is the is where you see civil disobedience the most because that's where, you know, you'll see work stoppages, right? Where people will refuse to work. And mm-hmm. and we have lost, I think we, uh, a certain generation, have lost the most critical part of protest is not going out into the street, having a rally, walking around, showing your, showing your opinion for something. That's not important. The most important... What? 
I know. I'm. I'm gonna. Maybe I'm gonna blow some minds right now. Mm, okay, go. <laughs> the most important part of protest is stopping business as usual. Like it's. Mm-hmm. This is basic stuff. I'm sure we've said it even on the show before. And if you've done any reading into any kind of revolutionary thinking, that's what you have to do to be taken seriously. And so, or to be taken seriously, or to stop bad decisions from being made. And so if you're, you know, you're in the, in the, in the situation for hospitals, it's like, well, do you have the staff of the hospital on side? Do you even have the administration of the hospital on side? What if you were to stop refusing to collect uh, parking fees, for example, or you start like you, you just disobeyed the order to fire staff or to lay people off. And you just ran deficits and said to the government, look, like we're saving people's lives here. You just have to pay us. You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of different ways to stop business as usual. But the, but the question is, what is the best tactic that has to come up in a general brainstorm of the people who are involved with the campaign because if you don't have that then you might just be coming up with ideas the way that we're coming up with ideas and they might not be workable and you find that out the the hard way which is also kind of a part of activism sometimes too and i think that you raise like a really important point about knowing about history because there's like a world of history of people doing really good civil disobedience to change the way that our society works. Um, You know, whether that be with um, struggle for uh, people from indigenous communities who, you know, are escaping enslavement, who are attempting to make abortion legal. There's so many different types of civil disobedience in our history um, that are very useful for us to learn from. But you also p- said something that I want to pick up on. I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. What is bad civil disobedience? you have an example of that? Um, that would be like maybe an individual going on a hunger strike over something that like is not that serious. And then they <laughs> find themselves like on day one realizing that they have no support. And then it stops. Is, do you have an example? No, no, but I can't. <laughs> yes, I can you give you do. Some... Yes, you do. You just don't want to say. I respect that. That's okay. We don't have to go there. <laughs> uh, what's my example? Oh, I'm not saying that. I'm not thinking of a particular example. I just know. I know that you know some bad motherfucking examples of civil disobedience. I do too. I mean, I'm I'm thinking of stuff that I wouldn't say. <laughs> I, I mean, people. I can tell. Okay, I can say one, and I've mentioned this on the show before. I think it's it, hanging a banner off of the Bloor Viaduct in Toronto. Not good. <laughs> it's not a good one, and it's not good for a bunch of reasons. One, it's fucking high. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's the highest bridge. Your banner has to be so big. Number two, like it is not a good bridge to do it because like it has, uh, you know, anti like suicide prevention barriers. You can't really get past those for great reasons. So don't try to hang anything off the Bloor Viaduct. <laughs> but you know what? But also like, yeah, do because then you'll learn from it a little bit. But no, <laughs> just don't, not the Bloor Viaduct. Do another one. <laughs> I'm telling you. Sure. My point is not to not do it because you don't think that it'll work. Like no. for me, some of the worst examples of uh, civil disobedience, none that I will name, is okay. when like someone, like uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think if there is something that I can name. 
there's so many people that I don't want to like actually name, but like they'll, they'll be like, you know, I don't know, a fucking person on their own. Anything that you're doing on your own is bad. <laughs> essentially <laughs> if you don't have other people like next to you or doing stuff with you like it's it's probably not going to turn power on its head right right and you have to scale it too right so if you have 20 people the civil disobedience that you can do with 20 people has to be different than the civil disobedience mm-hmm. you do with 20,000 people and exactly. it, and it could be powerful but it's going to mm-hmm. be different exactly yeah, I, I think like one of the, the, the tropes that the far right uses all the time and it surfaces every time that there's a, a notice of a highway shutdown is that, uh, you know, protesters blocked a highway and then an ambulance couldn't get to the hospital and somebody died. So, you know, knowing those kinds of pitfall arguments and they're not real arguments because those are if you search Snopes or whatever, like they always go back to being invented by a right wing kind of thing. But, you know, if you're planning an action that is intense, that is going to stop critical passage of of things like that of vehicles like that it does go a long way to troubleshoot and to anticipate some of that and to figure out a way for your action to allow like some things to go past or to allow some business as normal to happen like this is all a, a, a tug of war between something that is going to you know be supported by your audience because you don't want to anger people in the tactics that you pick but also recognizing that if you're in touch with the the community that you're reaching, if you stop traffic and the like, what am I trying to say? So someone said to me is like, you, uh, you are always wanting to, to stop traffic, Nora. And what about the, the working class person that's trying to get to work? And it's like, well, ideally that person's literally with me stopping traffic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like that that's how we have to think about these kinds of things if your if your action is going to a- affect a lot of people who don't know that they're involved with it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you said earlier that the most important thing about civil disobedience is stopping business as usual i think that there's another most important thing and that is um teaching people that uh, that kind of action is possible i think that you know, like my life was fundamentally changed. <laughs> like when I went to my first protest uh, against the the war in Iraq, I was like, oh, wow, didn't realize right. that people were doing this. But in my mind, I still it still wasn't like real to me that like that was something that I could be involved in organizing. But it was real to me all of a sudden that that was something that I could do, that I could I I could have some sort of impact on um, the way that the rest of the world thought about war. When I went to my first tuition fee protest, that was like that was different. It was it, it was like it felt closer to me, like I knew everyone who was organizing it I knew all of the people who were marshals I knew everybody who was like making things happen who were who were controlling what was happening at the at the stage when people were speaking who were keeping everybody safe with their marshal vests on and all of a sudden in my head I was like oh my god if those people can do this like I know some of these people like I started school at the same time as some of those these people if they can do this I must be able to learn how to do this. And all of a sudden it became possible in my mind because I knew 
after the tuition fee protests of, I don't know, what was it, 2003 or 2004, I can't remember, that there was, you know, there was a tuition fee freeze that was implemented. My mind was blown. I was like, what? We made tuition stop increasing? That's unreal in my head. And I was Mm. like, wow, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. Like that, the ability, like I was majorly shifted in that moment in knowing that I could manipulate uh, the way that power operated, not necessarily from the top down, but that power can flip and operate in the other way, even if it wasn't the 1960s. That's what I was thinking as an 18 year old. And, um, and learning that and learning how to do that uh, was very formative for me. But it, and it's so critical because it's like if if we if we have no knowledge that that's how power can be used, then we're never going to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Then we're always going to be talking about elections. Yeah, we're exactly. always going to be saying, oh, my goodness, there's nothing that we can do. And and then it's just like desperation, 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 hopelessness. And then everything sucks. Like there's a reason why. And petitions. Oh, my God. Yeah. And petitions. Like there's a reason why when people think of civil disobedience, unfortunately, there are right wing forces that want people to be scared by it. They want people to think that it's illegal, that you're going to get that you're that that these angry protesters are trying to hurt someone or they're trying to injure someone or professional protesters <laughs> um it, it, and it's and it's so not right like most civil disobedience if you look at small like or not i should i was gonna say small towns but no if you look at small or local issues like saving a community center or trying to get a stop sign at a particular intersection or trying to get a train stop on whatever like I feel like we're so disconnected with how decisions got made that we we broadly speaking the 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 moderate to 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 like the moderate left I guess we don't realize that like almost every like dot on the map there's some sort of dis- civil disobedience of people standing up and saying we want we want this we want this changed we want this added we want this taken mm-hmm. away D- done in a way that probably broke the law or broke decorum and that's how that those things change. But oh yeah, think of any sort of like societal progress, any, any, any. of it. Think of any. Every single thing. <laughs> it's like it almost all happens because someone said, "I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to break the rules, and I'm going to instead do it this way." Totally. And that's how society fucking changes. One hundred percent. The one thing that's so difficult right now is that there are there are forces that make it very difficult for people to take these kinds of risks. And, uh, and I think that we do have to acknowledge that, that high levels of personal debt, uh, increasing job precarity, uh, precarious status, uh, being a parent, all of these things make it more difficult in people's minds to take risks. And, and I think that that's the other side of this discussion, which is what, what does it mean when tuition fees go up? And students all of a sudden can't mm-hmm. feel like they can miss class anymore because they're literally p- paying to be in that class. Like that obviously has an impact. Right. And, and, and tuition fees are an easy example. But, you know, if you've got a, a, a sick parent and you're taking care of that sick parent because there's no public service that's going to help you take care of your sick parent, you're not about to even go probably protest the hospital uh, to say that you want a new machine or something like this that that uh, that would help your parents. You know what I mean? Because you can't afford to not be there. You can't afford to be arrested and to not be there for that sick parent. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
So recognizing that there's a limit on this stuff, but that being said, like, you know, there's also people in extraordinarily precarious positions doing this work all the time. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, the big message has to be, don't get discouraged and don't get too afraid because they want you to be afraid. And there's not much reason. There's reason to be afraid, but also there's not. Yeah. It's not as scary as you think. Especially like the more people that you have with you, the less likely that anything is going to happen to you for breaking the rules. For example, um, I for for example, what's the example? No, no, I I mean like you're that, what you're saying is that's right. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I mean, I I was in Detroit recently, and there's so much amazing civil disobedience happening in Detroit right now around food justice. Um, there's a lot of uh, foreclosures and um, housing issues happening in Detroit. Houses are being demolished um, by the city and so on. And people are reclaiming plots of land that they are not allowed to use, just turning them into gardens in these massive food deserts. And they're feeding each other. They have, there's over, I think 2,000 is um, the, the figure that we were given. Um, just like guerrilla food urban gardens uh, happening in Detroit right now from people reclaiming uh, plots of land that the city has taken over that people are not allowed to do anything with but it's such a massive movement right now it's like who's going to stop them and they're using those spaces to teach people about organic sustainable food to feed one another and to just you know, grow a community, build community again in a place that has seen a lot of economic disparity, a lot of attack by really shitty capitalist policies. And that type of civil disobedience, the, the amount of education and services that people are able to provide for one another when the city or, you know, the state is is refusing to do so or unable to do so or whatever it is, um, it's it's phenomenal. And I think um, here in Canada, I mean, some, you know, some some movements are doing it a lot better than others, obviously. Uh, but part of it is about political imagination. What you can imagine. Someone had to imagine I can take this plot of land yeah. and make it into a garden and and refuse to like, you know, there's this like fence movement happening in Detroit that we were learning about, like people building these massive fences <laughs> to to prevent people from like taking their gardens. Um, and, you know, we could, you know, it takes someone imagining that to be possible in order for it to happen. And the, you know, the, the possibilities are are literally endless with civil disobedience and civil disobedience massively changes the world. You don't have to be Colin Kaepernick to do civil disobedience. And I would hope, in fact, that that's not yeah. the way um, that everybody thinks about it. You can just be fucking Nora Loretto with like some sod and a piece of wood, road <laughs> <laughs> and do your civil disobedience that way, you know? Well, and, and as you said, once you learn how easy something is and becomes a, a tool in your arsenal, like it's the, so the, the easy. first time that it's so the, easy. The, or not the first. Well, I guess the first time I was involved with organizing an office occupation, I was like, whoa, this is really easy. Mm-hmm. Right. Like mm-hmm. we occupied so Glenn easy. Murray's office, who was the minister at the time of training <laughs> colleges and universities. We knew he wasn't. He blocked all of us on Twitter. Yeah. Well, <laughs> poor guys. Like, 
anyway um he's not poor i yeah you know that's true uh so the, he he wasn't i don't think at his office i don't think we expected him to be at his office so we brought flowers and gift cards to their staff and we're like you know what we're not going through your files we're not gonna mess anything up we're gonna clean up after ourselves but your office is closed today you can go home and they're like cool okay bye (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. it was great it was a great action and it, it it changed people who were there who didn't think who were scared or who never thought about doing something like that or were really nervous that they were going to be arrested that day and none of the above happened it was an action it got on the news people were able to talk about uh tuition fees and get that issue in the news and to win some really important funding to be placed back um into into post-secondary education at the time it's like you know it's it it really changes you when you think about what's possible. We follow so many rules just because yeah. um, we're told to follow them. But we sometimes rules need and deserve to be broken because they don't make sense. Well, especially as we're entering into a world where there's going to be more and more rules created that absolutely need to be broken or that need to be ignored mm-hmm. or that need to be mm-hmm. resisted through action. And, um, and, and I think this is probably a really good place to end. It's like the role of civil disobedience is going to be the only thing that stops Doug Ford. Literally the only thing. He's not going to get voted out of office. He's not like, unless he dies, like it's literally just going to be civil disobedience that does that. And so then the real question is, okay, what, what kinds of civil disobedience, where is he weak? What are his pressure points? And, you know, we in Quebec, like, the Quebec student strike is a tremendous example of civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. Many thousands of people were arrested over the course of the strike and a mm-hmm. majority government fell. So, you know, these things are possible. They just take organizing and strategizing and courage, political courage and political imagination. Mm-hmm. 